Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and that makes this Stuff You Should Know, the big woolly edition. Yeah, I'm kind of excited about this one. Yeah, man. Uh, we've seen one of those before. We're talking about bisons, by the way. Yeah, I thought you might bring that up. Yeah, we we saw one at that animal preserve. There was like a bear and a bison, and they were fighting. <laughs> yeah, it was a little depressing, actually. <laughs> but they are supposedly rescued animals um, at this animal petting zoo, this wild game petting zoo. Yeah. And that was a smart bison because he had learned to go to the little chute where you would put his food. Mm-hmm. And wasn't he doing something too? He's manipulating it somehow. It seems or, like it. Or he was trying to manipulate us into giving him some food. I can't remember. There's some manipulation yeah. involved because I remember <laughs> thinking like, huh, bisons are very manipulative animals. <laughs> yeah. Jerks. Yeah. Uh, I have a story for you to start this one if you like. Uh, that sounds great. Chuck, have I ever told you about my one glorious football story? I've heard little bits about your football experience that you were a bigger kid, so you played on the line. Uh huh. Uh huh. And that's about all I remember. Okay. Well, uh, as a child, I went to Beverly Elementary School and I played uh, football for them. Uh, and the way it was in Toledo was you would play for your elementary school's team, team when you got to middle school. Interesting. We didn't so you could play teams. your last year of elementary school, sixth grade, mm-hmm. but then you could keep playing through seventh and eighth grade. But it was for your elementary school. Interesting. It was weird, but so I played for Beverly Elementary, which awesome. meant I was a Beverly Bison. <laughs> and I was probably the kid on the team that most resembled a bison because I was a pretty big, fat kid. Yeah. And I was a lineman. And um, I sucked at football because no one ever explained <laughs> any strategy to me. It wasn't until college yeah. that I understood that football even had strategy. Well, and technique. Yeah. I thought it was just like block that guy. Right, right. Um, so they I didn't teach you the swim move. Nothing. Okay. They taught me nothing. It was literally like just stand there and don't let that guy through. That's what I was taught. That's the basics. I was failed by all coaches. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, uh, I did have one shining moment. Right. I was eighth grade. I was third string. We were playing the the Colts. I can't remember what school, but they were the worst team, and uh, we were we had the game in hand, and the Colts were all like just three-and-a-half-foot-tall little pint-sized kids. So we had the game in hand. Um, It was late in the game, and they put me in as a defensive lineman, right? So you're the biggest guy on the team, and you were third string? (laughs) I am, at this point, the biggest guy on the field. But, yes, I was third string and and an eighth grader, too. Right, right. Um, so, uh, they, at this point, I'm the biggest guy on the field and, and they put me in and, um, and I, I'm, I'm like, I, I point to the quarterback. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm coming for you. <laughs> they put two guys on me, right? They, the quarterback hikes the ball. He's, he's appropriately nervous because I'm staring at him. He knows like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get to him one way or the other. This is like my, my last chance, right? These two guys come at me, these two offensive linemen. I, just grab both of the backs of their helmets and just push them down, like right really? underneath me. Go right through them. Yeah, I don't. Th- like after this, the coaches are like, maybe we should put this kid in, you know, earlier in the season. Uh huh. Anyway, I I um I push I, I just get through both of the guys who who are on me. That's called the Mo Howard. I go. Is it? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's what I did. <laughs> yeah. I go right to the quarterback. Didn't tackle him. I picked him up and threw him down. 
I didn't even like stagger. I just picked the, this kid up and threw him. And I turned around. I was like, yeah, you know. What I didn't know is I caused a fumble, and one of our guys picked it up and ran it in for a touchdown. I didn't find out until after the, uh, the the play was over. So your line sheet that day was one, one play, one sack, one forced fumble. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, and a touchdown as a result of the fumble. Dude, that's great. So... That was my big story as Beverly Bison, and that is the 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 intro, I guess you could say, to this. What happened to bring <laughs> the Bison's back from the verge of extinction? I think that might have helped the cause. I think it did too. Perhaps I've always had an infinity affinity for Bison's ever since playing for the uh, Beverly Bison's. But I think we should probably start out, Chuck. What what's some people might be like, I've heard of buffalo, but I don't know what a bison is. Well, if you've heard of a buffalo and you're an American, you've heard of bison, pal. You're confused. That's right. Right? Here in the States, they are bison, technically. They're pretty interchangeably, you know, you can call them a buffalo, but technically a buffalo is a cape buffalo or water buffalo, and they're native to Africa and Asia. Right. The bison's native to here in the United States. North America, typically. Specifically. And the word buffalo comes from the French. 17th century explorers uh, encountered these things and said, le boeuf. What is that, beef? It means oxen or beeves, whatever a beeve is. Beeves? B-E-E-V-E-S is what it said. Huh. No, it's beavis. Oh, okay. And then uh, the English folks arrive later and change it to le boeuf, and then buffle, then buffler, then buffio. And eventually, they settled on Buffalo. So that's where we're at now. That's where we're at now. But uh, so they're both members of the Bovidae family. Yes. Um, and they're very much related. But yes, one lives in Asia and Africa. One lives in North America. And we've got two um, types of buffalo, uh, or bison. I'm sorry, in North America, we've got the wood bison, which is the smaller of the two. Yeah. And then the plains bison, which is the big, the big daddy. Yeah. And they, you know, if you've ever seen the one with the, the big hump. That's the the wood bison. The uh, plains bison has the flat back, a more distinctive cape, and a more well-developed beard and throat mane. Is that right? So the one with the big hump is the wood bison. Yeah. Because the hump from ground to hump can get up to like six feet tall. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. Uh, let's talk numbers first, okay. like sheer numbers. Yeah. Um, in 2007, they did a bison census, and uh, the number... On private ranches was 198,234. That is significantly more than it was a century earlier. Yeah. Um, about 220,000 in Canada, and about 20,000 of these bison in the United States and Canada are roaming free on public land, and close to a half a million total herd in North America today. Uh, but at one point, though, Chuck. In about uh, 1900, 1908, there were maybe, in all of North America, 500 of these things. Yeah. 500. And those 500 were federally protected on federally protected land. Yeah. Prior to that, say, I think it was 1897, in Lost Park, Colorado, uh, poachers killed four bison, uh, and those four represented the last unprotected, free-roaming bison herd in the in North America. Wow. And thus ended what was called the Great Slaughter. 
which we'll get to in a second. But let's go even further back. Okay. To really get to to the the um the point about how few 500 bison is in like say 1897, 1900. Yeah. You have to understand how many there were in say 1700. I've seen estimates as high as 60 million that far back. Oh yeah. Chew on this, pal. I saw an estimate as high as a hundred million. Really? Yeah. Jeez. Normally, the accepted number um, was proposed by a guy named um, Shepard Crush the Third. He's an anthropologist from Brown University, and in 1999, he came up with an estimate of 30 million. And if you're an anthropologist or a wildlife biologist or just a bison enthusiast, you're probably going to go with 30 million. At any given time, there yeah. were 30 million pre-European um, settlement. There are 30 million bison roaming North America at any given time. Well, they were the largest large mammal in the United in North America, the largest uh, yeah. in population but, at one point. But they're also the largest physically. They're about 2,000 pounds. The yeah. average uh, male is about 2,000 pounds. And they're quick, too. They can get up to like 35 miles an hour. 2,000 pounds at 35 miles an hour. And they're are 30 million of these things running around. That's a ton. That's that's a lot of tons. A lot. A it's lot like of 30 tons. million tons. Yeah, and they spanned, uh, they obviously made their home uh, most abundantly in, in the Great Plains because there was lots of great virgin grassland that was packed with uh, vitamins and minerals, which allowed it to grow back really fast after it was eaten. Yeah. From Canada to northern Mexico. Yeah. Tons and tons of buffalo. So, um... Something interesting, if you've read 1491, uh, that pops up toward the end of the book. I know I keep going back to this well, but it is... I love it. It is really wet. It's a consistent thread. Um, there were there There's this whole idea that what the settlers out west or on the plains encountered and took to be like a wild state, like the natural wild state mm-hmm. of tens of millions of buffalo running everywhere was actually a freak of nature, right? That you have um, an apex predator in any ecosystem. Yeah. And if you remove the apex predator, all the other all the other um, species are allowed to just boom, right? Sure. In On the Great Plains, the apex predator was man, human, <laughs> in the form of Native Americans, yeah. who were removed from the ecosystem. Right. And without the Native Americans to effectively manage the herd populations and the... Um, prairie lands, uh, buffaloes were allowed to explode to unnatural population numbers. So there's an idea that what we took and still to this day consider was a natural population of 30 million was actually far, far less than that prior to the Columbian Exchange. Really? Yeah. Very interesting. Isn't that interesting? Either way, there are probably about 30 million buffalo roaming the Great Plains in, say, 1700. That number dropped dramatically starting about 1820, right? Yeah, with the Great Slaughter. Uh, pre, um, well, we'll get to the horse. Pre-horse, dating back to prehistoric times, there was what was known as buffalo jumps. Did you see this? No. So buffalo jumps are uh, were when they would uh, Native Americans would herd buffalo down these narrow chutes and run them off a cliff. Like lemmings. Like lemmings. And it would break their legs. I mean, not such a cliff that it would, you know, destroy the animal completely. It would just break their legs <laughs> so they couldn't move. And then they would, you know, they had guys waiting down there with spears and stuff and clubs to kill them. 
And it was sort of like the first factory farms. It was where they were able to get large abundance, over an overabundance of buffalo meat and pelts and all the stuff that they use. And uh, there is today in Canada a World Heritage Site called Head Smashed In Buffalo Jump. No way. And it is one of the uh, oldest and largest and best preserved buffalo jumps known to exist today. And if you go to their website, it has a little animation of buffalo like lemmings, like running and then falling off a cliff over and over and over. Right. And I should also insert here that Chuck and I are both fully aware that lemmings don't naturally run over the cliff, that that was actually the producers of the (laughs) Walt Disney documentary that created that myth and drove those poor lemmings over the cliff. That's true. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because we would have heard about that. Totally. Uh, So at any rate, there were buffalo jumps. It was a, a, a way to get lots and lots of buffalo dead quickly. And uh, if you live in Alberta, you can go see the head smashed in buffalo jump for a mere $10 for an adult. And not only if you live there, if you're visiting there, you could do it too. That's right. But the the Native American had, a, I mean, I know the white man is blamed for it, and they largely are responsible for the mass slaughter. But the Comanche Indian in the 1830s were killing close to 300,000 bison a year, which was not a sustainable number. Right. Well, that's actually a very hot topic. Um, you know, there's the idea that the Native Americans are the noble savage. Um, and then there's also evidence that they're not, that they weren't. Uh, right. that there was this thing called bison overkill. Mm-hmm. Um, they also believe that that's what happened to the mastodon and the saber-toothed tiger and that they were basically hunted to extinction um, by, like, the Clovis people. And the Clovis people, in turn, became extinct as well. It's like a highly debatable topic of, right. over exactly what happened. But if that's true, then that means that bison have always been overhunted. Because if the Comanche were doing that, and apparently it takes six to seven bison to to for a person to subsist uh, a year. Six bison per person per year? Yeah, but that's without agriculture. Like right. That's just living on bison. <laughs> Can you imagine your... Your stool production. <laughs> He's just like, I buy some breakfast, buy some eggs, buy some burgers. Yeah, and I would imagine your sweat smells like vinegar because apparently uh, if you have a high-protein, low-carb diet, yeah. you sweat vinegar. That's gross. It, it is gross, believe me. Uh, the railroad industry was also a great threat to the bison because the bison were a threat to the railroad industry. Yeah. And you know who won that war? Well, there's a guy um, named Frank Rowe who, who wrote a book in 1972 called The North American Buffalo, and he cites um, a train that was headed west in 1850 that had to wait for three days for a herd of bison to cross the track. Yeah, that wasn't working for them. And they weren't necessarily slow moving. There's just that many bison. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we reached the point now where the, the white man has entered the picture. The Winchester 50 caliber, uh, rifle has entered the picture and the horse has entered the picture. So all of these factors that would, uh, lead to the near extinction of bison have all come together and converged on the Great Plains and they are about to unleash holy hell on the bison population. The Great Slaughter. Uh, so do you, like, have you heard about the Great Slaughter? Do you know some things about it? I know that they could have been potentially killing like 200,000 buffalo per day at one point. They had contests, Chuck. There were buffalo killing contests. The railroads, like you said, to get rid of this bison problem. Yeah. They they also figured out how to make money by hosting hunting expeditions where you never left the train. Yeah. The train would just drive slowly and you would shoot. 
That's as many as you could. It's also in Dead Man. Oh, yeah. Um, That was real. Oh, yeah. They had bison killing contests. There's a man who holds the record in 1870. Buffalo Bill? No. No. He had Buffalo Bill beat. Wow. A man named Thomas C. Nixon of Kansas set the record in 1870, killing 120 bison in 40 minutes. Buffalo Bill supposedly killed uh, many, many thousands himself. Yeah. He was hired to do that. Um, and hides were going for $2 a head. And in the winter of 1872 to 73, just the winter, 1.5 million buffalo hides, bison hides, were Jeez. shipped back east by train. Well, I do know at one point that they said that the, the big hunters were using two guns because they were shooting them so fast they had to let one gun cool down. Yeah. And so they just picked up the fresh gun. So they wouldn't have to stop killing. Yeah. At first, like, they were shooting them for meat, and then buffalo hide, bison hide, became all the rage. Yeah, sure. Not just back east, but in Europe as well. Mm -hmm. Demand increased, so they were like, oh, well, let's, you know, we'll just leave the meat there. We don't need the meat. There's millions of these things. There's rotting carcasses everywhere. Yeah. Um. And as if this couldn't get worse, as if it couldn't get worse, right? So the poor bison population, possibly, if there was bison overkill, their apex predators removed, they're allowed to bloom, and then a new, even more damaging apex predator comes in, starts killing indiscriminately like they've never seen before. The One of the reasons why they had bison killing contests was not just for the railroad, but it was because the um, federal government... And whites in general figured uh-huh. out that the Plains Indians subsisted on bison. Uh, take away the bison, take away the food supply, yeah. you civilized the Indian. Yeah. So that was one reason why bisons were hunted to near extinction with so such glee was because it, it was serving a larger purpose of bringing the Indians into the fold as well. So it's a way to tame the West. Or indirectly. removing them from the fold. Yeah. yeah, or starving them. Yeah. Wow. So, so, again, we get down to, what, 500 bison that are finally protected. Um, and starting in, what, like 1906, who who is responsible for this? Uh, 1905, an a environmentalist you might have heard of by the name of Teddy Roosevelt and William Hornaday, who was a zoologist, poet, con- conservationist, <laughs> songwriter, realtor, <laughs> evidently. Oh, that was odd. That is odd. Well, you got to make money somehow because those other ones aren't going to do. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he, he was a really top-notch conservationist, actually. But um, William Hornaday and Teddy Roosevelt formed the American Bison Society 1905 because they were like, wait a minute. These things are – remember all those buffalo that used to be out there that aren't there anymore? Like, this might be a problem. Yeah. They're like, what are we going to hunt? And so we're better to send them. Let's send them to the Bronx in New York City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Great Plains of the Bronx. Yeah. It definitely got them out of the hands of poachers. Uh, and, and kidding aside, though, the Bronx Zoo was a great place uh, for them to send some species for uh, reproducing. And Yellowstone National <laughs> Park was established as a as a preserve. And the New Yorkers got to sit there and watch bison getting it on. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, nickel ahead. A nickel. Boy, I th- uh, not a buffalo nickel. Huh? Huh. No. Uh, they also, uh, in 1908, created the, the federal government created the National Bison Range in Montana. But these weren't the efforts that ultimately did a lot to increase the numbers. No, because you know what? Although they were protected, and uh, Congress actually did pass an act, um, the Federal Park Protective Act, I believe, that said if you poach buffalo, you're in big trouble. Right. Um, 
it, they were never listed as endangered. Yeah, I wonder why. I couldn't get a reason there. So I, I don't know either. But they they were clearly close to being endangered, but they were never listed, so they didn't enjoy that full protection. Yeah. So Roosevelt, he, he had a pretty good effort by establishing the Park Service. Yellowstone had a protected herd. You had them in the Bronx Zoo. You had them in Oklahoma. You had them in, in um, South Dakota. But none of these, like you said, led to the real resurgence, the the um the resurgence in the bison population in North America. What did though, Chuck? Well, maybe we should talk about well, yeah, sure. What did uh private landowners? Ted Turner. Ted friggin' Turner. Yeah. He was the one responsible for bringing the bif- the bison back from the near extinction. He's one of my heroes. Should we just give a few Turner stats here? Sure. The second largest private landowner in North America. Yeah. He's got uh, about 2 million acres of ranch land and uh, 15 ranches in seven states that are all bison ranches, active working bison ranches. And I believe he manages about 50,000 head of bison. Uh, himself. Himself by hand. Himself. <laughs> well, he Jane helped out while they were together. Yes. And he opened his, uh, I'm sorry, he purchased his first bison in 76 and opened his first bison ranch in 1987. Which makes me wonder, where did he keep that bison for 11 years? Did he just, like, take it everywhere with him in the back seat, or? He had plenty of land. There was no shortage of space for that one bison. Okay. But I think he, to answer your question, he kept it at his mansion in Buckhead. Okay. Um, if you want to learn more about Ted Turner's, um, he has many ongoing projects to save the species. You can go to www.tesf.org. And uh, he's, I mean, a lot of this is obviously for for raising uh, bison to sell, to stock his Ted's Montana grills with fresh bison steaks, yeah, and burgers. But it still helps the conservation effort. Well, it does. I mean, uh, whether they're free roaming or um, commercially raised, if you are just looking at the hard numbers of bison populations in the U.S., they are not endangered anymore, and it's because they're so delicious that they're. Is, that's the reason why they're not endangered. Well, and one of the cool things about the bison is it's it's across the board, the National Bison Association prohibits the use of subtherapeutic antibiotics, growth hormones, and animal byproducts. So it's not like, oh, this one cow farm says we shouldn't inject them with hormones. It's all, all bison yeah. in the U.S. And they are very nutritional compared to cow beef. They uh, don't need to be handled much. They almost exclusively dine on grass. And if it's if it's um, unmanaged grass, it's organic, it's fully organic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, let's talk nutrients. The proportions of protein, fat, and minerals and fatty acids to its caloric value are outstanding compared to grass beef. I'm sorry, just beef, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, large concentrations of iron and a lot of essential fatty acids. So people are up with bison. They're eating it a lot more over the past decade. The numbers have really risen dramatically. Um, do you eat it? Yeah, I've had it. It's good stuff. Well, I've had a bison burger. I, I didn't, you know. I've had bison steak at Ted's Montana Grill, which I should say, full disclosure, we own no stock whatsoever in it. I've never eaten there. Oh, you should. It's cool. It's got a, like the the interior decor is like a turn of the last century, like Kansas really? restaurant. Yeah, That's it's nice. very cool. Uh, like the tin plate ceiling and yeah, all yeah. that stuff. Um, and yeah, the bison steak is very good. Now, can you tell the big taste difference? Yeah. Really? Yeah. 
Totally. Because I've had the burger and I couldn't tell a huge difference. You, but well, you're a steak guy. You like steaks. Oh, sure. You immediately, you can look at it and tell a difference, but the taste, you can tell a difference as well, too. Mm. I mean, it's not just like, it's not like eating cat and eating steak, but I mean, you can tell a difference. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, sure. Cat is gamey. Yeah. Um, so, Chuck, also, we should say, it's not just Ted Turner who's single-handedly. No. Keep saving the bison herds. Because now there's, what, 400,000 commercial bison living in the U.S. right now? Yeah, a little more even. And that's just the U.S. alone. Turner's got 50,000 of those, which is a pretty substantial portion. Yeah, Canada's doing their part. Um, there is a group of 11 tribes um, who got together in 1990 to form the Intertribal Bison Cooperative. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 57 tribes that manage 15,000 heads of bison collectively. And one of the things that if you are if you manage a herd of bison, whether for conservation or for deliciousness, you are going to run into something called brucellosis. Yeah, which is not good. No, it's a bacteria. Yeah, and it's called it, like another name for it is contagious abortion. That's two great words to pair together. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so basically, uh, brucellosis is a bacteria that you can that ruminating animals, which is grazing animals. Yeah. Um, they they can pick up pretty easily through the mouth. Um, the bacteria collects in the reproductive organs. Uh-huh. If you are if you have milk, uh, you're going to pass bad milk. Right. If you're pregnant, you're going to abort your fetus. And if you lick this genital area, you've just contracted it. If you eat tainted meat, tainted buffalo meat, as a human, yes, right, you can catch it as well, and you get terrible, terrible flu-like symptoms. But if you're a bison or a reindeer or something like that, you are in grave danger if you have this bacteria. It can kill you pretty easy. Well, and that's certainly one of the big reasons because, you know, with all these conservation efforts, you might think, well, why are there still only half a million? Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest reasons. And sadly, there are quarantine periods, and when these infected bison roam free like they are uh, prone to do, they have... They have to be put down. They get shot. Yeah, like 3,700 of them uh, in the past 20 years have, have done have wandered outside of Yellowstone, and they have to take them down. Yeah, if yeah, if you're the one of the problems, one of the big problems we're facing with getting the bison population back on its feet is that we don't have land like we used to. Well, that's the other big reason. So their original range, their original ecosystem, are now developed. It's like a quickie mart now. So it's like you guys just stay in Yellowstone. Yeah. Oh, you you wandered outside of Yellowstone and bang, right? Um, apparently, also even in Yellowstone. Sometimes things converge like they did in 1996-97. That winter, there's uh, a particularly harsh winter, so a lot of the a lot of the food supply was covered up with snow and ice, and like 1,300 bison starved to death in the park. Wow! On top of a bunch that had to be shot for wandering out too. So it was a bad year for bison in Yellowstone. Well, and not the final reason really is the, um, when you have a smaller herds like this, there's going to be more inbreeding, and inbreeding doesn't lead to a healthy population. Yeah, which is one of the reasons why brucellosis is so rampant. You have a narrower gene pool. So thank you to the private citizen. 95% of all bison are are (laughs) on private land. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. Like people coming together to single-handedly revive this species from the brink of extinction. So every time you eat a bison burger, you are helping to conserve the bison population. Isn't that weird? <laughs> that is weird. Uh, I got one more fact for you. Is, is it on a high note? Uh, sure. Okay. 
Do you like buffalo cheese and stuff like that? I do like buffalo mozzarella. It's good stuff. Not from a bison. Apparently, any kind of buffalo product like that, uh, milk and cheese, is from the the water buffalo. Cool. And the reason why bison are not uh, commercially milked is because the ladies have uh, little teats. Really? They have tiny little teats that are very small, and they're not great for for milking. And um, yeah, so they, they they don't adapt well to that kind of thing. The ladies are like, hands off, fellas. Huh. Did not know that. That's I can I tell got. you, Chuck, even having been a Beverly Bison, I know today, as of today, more than I ever have before about bison in general. Yeah, me too. And it's bison's plural. We should go free that uh we should go free that bison at the game ranch. Do you want to? Yeah, we should just send it down uh, seventy eight east. <laughs> well, that's one reason why Toward they town. Get, well, I mean, it'd be a death sentence. Somebody'd shoot it. Yeah, because they they behave erratically. But apparently, one last thing: you can tell how a bison's feeling based on his tail. If his tail's really? dangling between his legs, he's calm. If it's moving, he's alert. He's maybe watching you. Huh. If it's pointing straight out or up, get out of town. Yeah, because oh, really? he's going to charge. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's it for bison, and um, again, hats off to everybody who's eating bison burgers because you are keeping the bison population in check. Ted Turner, thank you, sir. I commend you. I raise my Cuddy Sark to you. <laughs> I saw him at a, at the Willie Nelson concert a few years ago. You did? Yeah, and I wanted to tackle him and say thank you. He probably would have liked that. He was a big part of my childhood, being from Atlanta. Like, you can't be from Atlanta in the 70s and right. not think a lot of Ted Turner. Yeah, I, I'm sure he was like your secret Santa one year. Or yeah, something of like course. That. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know more about bison and extinction and uh, bison burgers and brucellosis, you've got all this stuff packed into one great article called What Brought Bison Back from the Brink of Extinction. That's nice a Nice alliteration twister. there, Conger. You could just put a bison extinction in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com and it should bring up this article. And I think I said search bar, did I not? Let's just... The cat's out of the bag already, okay? Enough yes, John games. Hodgman is sitting right here. We're not going to do listener <laughs> yeah. mail. Sorry, listeners. This is the fourth time I'm putting my foot down. This is the last time, at least for this series. This has been going on for two weeks. It's fine. This is the last time. Okay, so this is, is four weird. of four. Yeah. Maybe we should treat it a little more regally then. This is four of four. Can we cue some coronets? Excellent. Lovely. Yeah, so, Mr. Hodgman, thank what? you, you very much for coming. Pushing me right out the door, Josh. <laughs> thank you very much for coming. <laughs> and I'm a hologram. I'm not even here. Did you? I know. We're pushing through you. you right are... now, Hodgman Actual is in St. Louis, Missouri, mm-hmm. Gateway to the West, getting ready to perform tonight. On a book tour. Uh, on the book tour. Live atop the St. Louis Arch. Yeah. Well, well no, not exactly. Where's the, the locale again? I had it here just a second ago. It was at the uh, the bookstore there. In the la- like Laugh-A-Minute Bookstore, <laughs> I think, is what it was called. I think it was the Mad Art Gallery. That's yeah. the same, same thing, Laugh-A-Minute. 7 p.m. this very evening, November 3rd. You want to say the name again? The Mad Art Gallery, 7 p.m. this very evening, November 3rd, Hodgman Actual is presenting material from his book, That Is All, with special guest, insert name here. <laughs> That's excellent. I can't believe we got that guy or gal. Yeah. Yeah. Good going. So, uh, so no, I'm just a holographic representation of myself here again to say hello to you guys. Well, thank you. Because I'm, because I'm a, I'm a big fan. 
And I'm a deranged millionaire who has a hologram of himself that yeah. I can send to his favorite podcast. So why not? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about Hodgman. Like even even getting the the hologram of him is, you know, more than you could possibly want with yeah. anybody else. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. As the hologram, I can say I'm actually a little better. Oh really? Yeah, that guy. Is, we noticed. Yeah. We noticed last time. I'm not as flatulent. We noticed due to my holographic nature. <laughs> Although you still make the sounds, which is weird. It's that part of the program. It's, I am, I am, a, I'm a, a simulated program. Okay. Designed to interact with real world stimulus in a realistic manner. Eat a hamburger sandwich that moves you. <laughs> one of your favorite, one of your famous Atlantan hamburger sandwiches. So, John, you wrote a book. <laughs> it's called That Is All. It is yeah. the third in your series explaining the world. It is my complete book of world knowledge. It is like my previous two books. A collection of uh, um, fascinating trivia, uh, historical tidbits, and amazing true facts, all of which made up by me. Uh, this being the last in the series of uh, complete world knowledge, indeed the final world knowledge, dealing with uh, subjects as diverse as travel and ghosts and magic tricks and wine and sports and the end of the world. And it is called That Is All. And we've covered a lot of those in the podcast too. So this is almost, I guess you would say, companion piece. Well, to last time you the accu- stuff you should know body yeah, of work. Yeah, no, yeah, that's right. It's also my life's work. But uh, thank you. Okay. Last week you accused me of taking. Sorry, last week Chuck accused me. <laughs> that's right. Of taking to form a connection over over. <laughs> let's say over liberal inspiration from the stuff you should know podcast. <laughs> yeah. After I had very graciously pointed out. That a huge section of my book regarding noodling was an homage to your very podcast. And then I, I took that nice gesture and I stomped on it. But I will tell you one thing. I did download one of your podcasts specifically as research for the book That Is All. Which one? Noodling. Necronomicon. Ah. That was a good one with co-host Jonathan Strickland. That's right. Yes. Who, yeah, yeah. by the way... Just peed himself because we mentioned him in reference to you. It well, just happened just now. Yes. Um, my other hologram is cleaning that up as we speak. <laughs> that is, you're a full service guy. There are many holograms wandering the halls right now. I gotcha. It's part of a new security system. How stuff works is considering. So, John, is it true that in this book you explain things like the thick fish? What's the thick fish? And the bowl of brown? Oh, yes. That's right. Well, that's part of my. Well, you, know my, you know my book better than I do. Is it true that you explain the superiority of the year 1971 as birth year, which we both share? That's true. What, what's going on? Yes, true. Is it true <laughs> that you explain the benefits and taboos at sea while cruising? That is so. Is it true, John, that there is a table in your book about disgusting regional sodas? That is true. Would you be kind enough to read some of those sodas? Well, I feel like I'm being interrogated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have my own copy of the book. Okay. Oh, wait, you have it open there? Sure. The the thick the thick fish and the bowl of brown. What's the thick fish? The thick fish, the, the thick bowl of brown, the uh, the Patagonian toothfish wine, the furry <laughs> forearms. These are some of the funny things that you ingest in your book. Those are just words that you're stringing together. <laughs> you would think. That's my job. Okay. To string those words together. Uh, Bowl of Brown comes from a section of my book on rosé wine. Mm-hmm. 
because rosé wine is neither white nor red. I love the wine chapter. Thank you very much. Mm. It's something that I previously knew nothing about because I thought that wine was so complex and multi-layered uh, and, and, um, and historic that it could only be enjoyed by But apparently, no, it's simple. Just grape juice. All you need to make it is grape juice, human feet, and time. Yeah. yeah. Own yeast. Uh, but, and, but I point out that because rosé is neither white nor red, it is best paired with uh, ambiguous foods. <laughs> like the thick fish. Like thick fish, <laughs> scrod. Bowl of brown. Bowl of brown. <laughs> uh, mystery meat. That's a rosé. I like rosé. Yeah, it's like good. I mean it quite honestly. I like rosé. I like sparkling rosé as well. I know it, it. It you know you can you can tolerate ambiguity. I can. Yeah, uh, some of us can't. Like I'm not the least bit certain how either of you two feel about. We me. like things either you know we like things black or white. Mm-hmm. So we drink either white wine or black wine. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. We'll mix them up. <laughs> I don't remember what all those other words you were talking about were. Oh, that was pretty much it. You were going to talk but about I also disgusting talk, regional soda. But there are also non-alcoholic drinks. That you can drink, and there are still regional sodas all over this country that are not distributed to the rest of the world. Um, and and you might enjoy going into a a local uh, uh, you know on a, on a road trip, go into a little trading post there, uh-huh. and reaching behind <laughs> the disgusting handmade sandwiches and pulling out one of these disgusting regional sodas right. to enjoy. So, for example, there's a Thai's Gumption brand Brain Drizzle. Uh-huh. Which you can only get in Maine, Vermont. It's uh, the you know sodas were originally served in pharmacies. That's why they're, in parts of the country they're still called tonic. In New England they're still called tonic. Sure, because they were medicine. They were ways of right. of delivering medicine, and and in particular sort of like herbal remedies and nerve tonics and cocaine fizzes. These mm-hmm. are what they would serve. Cocaine fizzes were invented in this very city. In this very city of Atlanta, the cocaine fizz mm-hmm. later became. Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ty's uh, Gumption brand Brain Drizzle was the only one of the great old sodas to actually contain cerebrospinal fluid. <laughs> Once incredibly popular throughout the eastern seaboard for its invigorating flavor and hallucinatory <laughs> properties, it is now primarily found only in northern New England, where it is still made using the company's own secret recipe, including fluid from patient 31. <laughs> An unnamed hydrocephalic patient in a... Secret Hospital in Brattleboro, Vermont. <laughs> What's the, do you have a flavor profile on that one? Yes. Bitter, medicinal, brainy, sugary. <laughs> you know, Brattleboro, Vermont is a town very near to my retreat in Internetless Hills, western Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a wonderful town. I had a hard time during Hurricane Irene. There was a lot of flooding in Brattleboro. So I hate to make fun of it. Do you right. know what I mean? They do. They're, they're all dried out now. You should go up there, go visit the Latches Theater, go eat at fireworks, uh, go to the uh, retreat farm uh, and petting zoo. It's a wonderful place to go. But uh, did you know that Brattleboro, Vermont, speaking of Ty's brain drizzle, <laughs> that, the, that, the, that the hit rap song from 2007, Sippin' My Sadrizzle, <laughs> is now synonymous with the musical subgenre known as Brattleboro, Brattleboro Vermont White person with dreadlocks rap. <laughs> that whole subculture. That whole subculture wow. started up there, and uh, <laughs> and that song "Sippin' on My Sadrizzle" also introduced America to the controversial drink known as Sadrizzle, 
which is Thai's brain drizzle mixed with apricot brandy, uh, about 100 tablets of Sudafed crushed up, <laughs> and maple syrup. <laughs> and, you, and, and to enjoy it, you serve it in a solo brand plastic cup with a Vicodin dusted rim. <laughs> That's great. I don't know if we need to go in the, into any other regional sodas, but there are a lot of them. Uh, well, the the oh, the only other one in in the Denver, Colorado area and the Rockies, mm-hmm. you can still get Chico soda, and that's roast chicken flavored soda. <laughs> uh, and it's the only remaining uh, product in the in the in the company, in the line from Savory Meat Soda Corp. Because <laughs> up up until up until like 1992, not only could you get Chico, you could also get Porco <laughs> and Steak and Eggs Zone. Those were also available. But now just Chico. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, Chum. Go ahead. And then Chum Wine. Uh, yeah. Based on Cheer Wine, right? From uh, North Carolina. Yeah. It was one of many ripoffs of North Carolina's famous Cheer Wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one, <laughs> this one, unlike Cheer Wine, this one has a flavor profile of sweet cherry, bubble gum, and fish blood. Chum Wine. <laughs> It's its motto was the one the one to drink while spreading chum. <laughs> it was for fisher it's for fisher persons. Exactly. And that that was that little bit of delight was read directly from the book That Is All. That is all. John, um that is a hardcover book. It is they, as they usually issue. It is. It is the first edition hardcover book in pure black. And white. Yeah, that is just, it looks no, great. no light can escape from that, no, that it is, cover. It is, it is the black hole of hardcover books. It is absorbing, it is absorbing every light ray that comes at it. Yeah. It is a, a dark, stark tablet, uh, reflecting, um, and monolithic indeed, reflecting, uh, the end of, of this series. Mm-hmm. The end of human civilization and time as we know it in <laughs> 2012. And, uh, now that I've turned 40, the end of my life. Yeah. So more tragically, what's your life's work? It is, it is actually, you know, I'm sorry to put it in such stark terms, <laughs> but I mean, you know, it is the the purest, unfiltered expression of my adult brain, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, I hope very much that people will. I mean, look, we live in a we live in a culture mm-hmm. where people are getting their uh, their fake facts and their made up trivia. Yeah. Uh, and they're and they're invented truths for free on the news every night. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So you may ask, why should I go out and buy a hardcover copy of a book uh, full of it? And uh, you know that is a question only you can answer. All I can tell you is, this is truly my life's work, and I hope and I enjoy sharing it with you, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, as such, I mean, you're you're curating it. The the this kind of experience, this release, this is not just like Hodgman dropped a book. Hodgman dropped a yeah. book. It's a great book. Um, this is not my Tumblr book. Right. Yeah. Um, there, you're touring with it, right? I am. Starting, uh, well, I'm starting in St. Louis. Days ago. I'm in St. Louis That's tonight. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then tomorrow I will be in Los Angeles, California at the, mm-hmm. uh, November 4th. Right. The Largo Theater with Paul F. Tompkins. Oh, Largo. Love. Yeah. Love that place. That's a wonderful place. Yeah. And then, uh, I will be in Portland on Sunday the 7th, uh, with John Roderick. Okay. Uh, and uh, and then we we travel directly up to Seattle after that to be at Town Hall, 
again with John Roderick, and um, other special guests will join me later on the tour. John will be singing. Correct? He will be singing songs. He will not just be... Are you going to join him on ukulele and vocals? There will be ukulele playing, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Jumping flea playing. Right. John is going to, on stage, teach a um, kid to read. That's right. Cause An illiterate a... kid, too. This isn't a sham. It's not, it's not a carnival act. Right. I will find an illiterate child <laughs> in each town <laughs> and teach him to read the words. That is all. Yeah. And it's going to be heartbreaking. It's going to be pretty moving. That last part isn't true, but I will be joined by other special guests who may or may not be literate throughout the tour, and it will be going on through the 16th. And if you want to find out where I am and, and if you want to come and see see me present material from the book, uh, you can go to areasofmyexpertise.com. Yeah, and, and 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 visit there. You will have to buy a ticket for the book, but the cost of the ticket includes a copy of the book. So that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I think. And you'll you'll be signing some too. And I you'll just sign be standing every, there to be gawked at. I will sign. I will sign every. I will sign every book. And uh, you're and, one of those guys, aren't you? Like you. you of course he is. Yeah, course. you see to it that everybody who's standing in line gets a yeah. Gets the signature. I want Legionnaire's disease. I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> shake everyone's hand <laughs> for you. Heisman. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Um, well, so and, I may, and if if I can pull it together, guys, and I hate to make promises, but it's you know sometimes you got to say something publicly to make yourself do it. Sure. I'm trying to find. Maybe you guys can help me. We probably can. Is some is a company that will make me some custom uh, mini packets of mayonnaise, so that I can give people who come to the event a free premium, a premium, which is samples of uh, John Hodgman's. Uh, uh, Ragnarok-proof survival mayonnaise. Awesome. Because aside from your own urine, mayonnaise is going to be the thing that you need most after the feces comes down and civilization is over. Well, I know that one thing you can do is lubricate small engines with mayonnaise. With mayonnaise, yeah. That's just one of the uses. You can can use it as a a cleanser, a hair cleanser, and it's a wonderful conditioner. Uh, You can use it to lubricate small engines. Uh, you can take uh, garbage bags and spread them out on the lawn and put mayonnaise all over them. Guess what you just made? A slip and slide in a time when there is no more running water. Wow. Your kids can enjoy that. <laughs> you leave those garbage bags out in the sun for a while. Guess what? You've just made yourself a handy poison. Well, and during <laughs> after the super collapse, John, you also make a good point in the book that uh, the, the currency could very well be the beef jerky dollar. Oh, it's definitely going to be the beef and jerky dollar. And you have a handy table of what one beef jerky dollar equals. Yeah. And uh, I think my, where I would spend my beef jerky dollar, yes, sir. if I had one, would be the, I think, 7.5 hours of human uh, human contact. Was that it? Uh, yes. Without murder at the end. Okay. I think is the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Without being cannibalized at the end. Do you yes. recall any other things a beef jerky dollar will get you after the super collapse? Well... No, but if you're interested, listener, you can take a look at my book. That is all. <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts. Actually. Which really, oh, thank you. I mean, sorry. also, it's it's. Let's just come out and say it. It is something of a, if not a survival guide. There's some survival to it, but also like a pretty, a, like a beat by beat prophecy of what's going to be going down right. in if, 2012. If you if you accept the hard, made up fact, that the Mayan long count calendar ends on December 21st, 2012 thus bringing an end to human civilization and time as we know it and the end of the world, uh, then you will find in my book a day-by-day, today-in-Ragnarok, page-a-day calendar running down for you what's going to happen starting December 21st, 2011, all the way through the blood wave, the Omega Pulse, Mm -hmm. 
the collapse of the dollar, uh, the uh, the return of the ancient and unspeakable ones, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and uh, and the singularity as well. Um, and so, yes, it will teach you how to survive all of these terrible catastrophes uh, until December twenty first, two thousand twelve, and then it's just all over for everybody. That's it. Yeah, or maybe not. Maybe not. I could be wrong. Well, but I'm probably right. Well, I think what you're saying is there are limits to even your power. Uh, look, there is a possibility that when 2000, uh, tw- excuse me, there is a possibility when December 21st, 2012 comes around that the last event of Ragnarok will be uh, the headless body of Nug Shohab, uh, one of the ancient and unspeakable ones, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, pushing the Earth through a rift in space time into another dimension. Mm-hmm in which none of us have any memory of Ragnarok, and the things in my book are considered to be simply the flights of fancy of a television personality mm-hmm. and uh, the made-up uh, facts of an adult, deranged millionaire. Look, I hope that happens, okay? <laughs> Probably not, but it's one possibility. Gotcha. That we will wake up on December twenty-second, 2012, and it will be like none of this had ever happened. <laughs> sort of like uh, Y2K. No, that's coming. Okay. Yeah. Y2K is coming I, next in 2012, I think, in about uh, sometime in May or June. The thing with Y2K, though, is that it doesn't attack computers. It only attacks, like, um, small non-mechanical tools, like uh, can openers. Okay. <laughs> we had that all wrong. It is not after computers <laughs> at all. It is, it is after non-computerized helpful devices. It's weird. And John, I misspoke. I don't want to misquote your no. fake fact, but one beat jerky dollar after the super collapse, so people know, is equal to 7.3 hours of human intimacy. Yeah. And that's what I'd spend my dollar on. <laughs> your jerky dollar? Either that or the, yeah. or the Hanukkah guilt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, it's not that, those are, it's not that there's going to be one currency. They're just going to, it's, it, you know, this is why I say you shouldn't bother hoarding gold. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, gold is shiny. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you on that. It's heavy? shiny and heavy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But when you are, are when you have been turned into an albino, right? <laughs> by by the great worm Hugnubbeth, right? Yeah. You don't care about gold. You want sunscreen. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the great thing about mayonnaise is that it's not very good sunscreen, but it makes a terrific short-term albino mask if you want to sneak into albino town and sell them mayonnaise posing as sunscreen <laughs> this is how we're all going to have to live in the future do you understand what i'm, I'm saying taking notes this is why mayonnaise is so helpful it all comes back to this so yeah. listen everybody i hope by the time you hear this i will have solved the problem well I've got, I, I got a guy you know you got a man you got I a got, guy? i got a packet guy he does all kinds really uh-huh you're not messing. You're not messing with the Hodgman now, are you? You want Hodgman ketchup? You want Hodgman tartar sauce? No, no, I don't want tartar sauce for God's sake. <laughs> right. what, what do you think? I got a guy. You think I'm looking for something to put on a fillet of fish? I'm looking for something to save the world. <laughs> John, I gotta go. Yeah, I gotta power down, guys. Thank it's you. been a lot of fun. I'm sorry, listeners, uh, whose mail did not get read because I took over there's, your segment. There's a backlog. All four of you. No, no, come on. But I, uh, but I, please understand, listeners. I, too, am a listener, and I hope you will continue to support these two wonderful natural broadcasters 
even though they have betrayed your trust by putting me on their podcast air four weeks in a, or four podcasts in a row. Mm-hmm. That's right. Buy that is all. I recommend the hardcover just because I'm old school. That and, and it's all that exists. There is no there is no audiobook. <laughs> there is no electronic edition. Yeah. There is no paperback. There is only hardcover edition. You know why? Because when Ragnarok comes, you're not gonna you're gonna be using your reading tablets to make shanties. <laughs> that's right. You can't make a shanty. This is the only the, thing uh, that's gonna be left. Uh-huh. Also, I haven't gotten around to recording the audiobook and I don't know when we're gonna do an ebook. So if you want to support my life's work, seriously, please come and see me on tour. Or go to uh, your local bookshop and purchase the book. Go to see him on tour. That's a treat, just to share air with you, my friend. Hey, yeah. you know what? We're not sharing air. I'm a hologram. <laughs> well, you know. But, it, but, but the people who go see you will be able to share air. They will. Yeah. They will. And we have before. And it's not. And the, my breath, despite what you may have read in the Huffington Post, my breath is not poison. No, it's not. <laughs> so if you want to catch up with the real Hodgman, share some air with him uh, on tour, right? Yeah. You can go to areasofmyexpertise.com, areasofmyexpertise.com. All one word. Just right. spell it out like a normal person. Uh, or you can tweet to him and be like, Hodgman, where are you at? Uh, on Twitter by addressing it to at Hodgman. That's H-O- the, it's the at sign. At sign, H-O-D-G-M-A-N. Yeah, and that will go directly to John's pocket. I shall, and uh, I shall feel it. Yeah. Um, and if you are ready to get back to business uh, with us, join us next week when things should be substantially more normal. Uh, and in the meantime, Not if you want... It's fun, though, you know? No. If you want your listener mail read, you send it to us. Send it to us right now. And if it's the coolest one, it'll be the first one we read after the Hodgman break, post-Hodgman break. And it will that will be substantial. That'll mean something. Okay? Hey, you know what? Whoever's listener mail you read next week, uh-huh. I'm going to send them a free book. That is hey. wow. That it's is the, really the something. least I can do, right? Well, then it's on us to pick it out, though. So yeah, that's fine. I we trust you guys. So they can bribe Let's us. Let's not go crazy, though. How about? <laughs> but how about, not. But not Sarah. How? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, Sarah. For, for Sarah. No. <laughs> no, we'll, I'm we'll going to send Sarah, Sarah gets one. Sarah gets one anyway. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, then I would get to my email if I were you, because obviously the first ones we get are going to be the ones we read. Uh, you can shoot us that email at stuff podcast. At HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?